What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun this season. King's Island is now open weekends. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hi, it's Autumn Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we have some uncomfortable conversations and talk through our differences. This week is our monthly check-in with Republican raconteur and diehard never-Trumper Rick Wilson. Uh, He is a bomb thrower of sorts himself, and we talk some about bombs and nukes and buttons and whose is biggest. Uh, And then continuing in that uplifting trend, we're going to have a conversation with Sachi Cole, who is a writer for BuzzFeed. She wrote a piece about Logan Paul, who is... I will commend you if you do not know the rest of this sentence, uh, but he is a YouTube personality who is in the news this week because of a distasteful video that he posted. We'll be talking about that and more in the second segment, but coming up first, Rick Wilson. So, my friend, master of the dark arts, mm-hmm. what the fuck is happening? What's happening right now is you are seeing inside of the Trump world a shit show meltdown um, that comes from two men with enormous egos finally colliding. And as I put it to somebody yesterday, this is like two rats in a sack. They're <laughs> going to tear each other apart. And and for Bannon, the reason the, the reason Bannon's you know sticking with Trump is a purely you know venal reason. He's got to keep the business model of Breitbart alive. And what does that mean? That means shoveling out a metric shit ton every day of boob bait for the Breitbart audience, um, and and for the Trump audience, where those people they need to hear every day that they're waging war against the hated mainstream media and the rhinos and the establishment, blah blah blah. But uh, you know, Bannon's clearly, uh, as this as the Wolf Book reports, and and frankly, as you know, a, a lot of other reporters have been covering this for a while. Bannon has a degree of contempt for this president, based on you know the fact that President Best Words is uh, is post literate, as they say, mm-hmm. to put it mildly, which is sort of the participation trophy of literary uh, of literacy, I guess. Um, and and I think that the whole. The whole conceit of Trump being this brilliant strategist and 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 thinker and whatnot and having eighty seven dimensional chess running all the time, I think Bannon looked at all that, you know, as most people would, and just said, "This is ridiculous. This is this is by no means even close to the real uh, character of this guy." And on Trump's side, you know, the words that came out, the, the reason Trump reacted so passionately and the reason Trump reacted so viscerally. This struck really close to home on a bunch of different areas, and and it really got into his ego, and and the fact that this book uh, covers things that Trump just utterly, you know, feels that are 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 real and true personal attacks on him, uh, including the things like about his hair and about his intelligence and his ability to read and all these other things. I can see why that reaction got focused so intently on Bannon, even though this this White House leaks like a sieve, and there are many, many people in this White House who are out there right now, um, you know, who who have who have sung the same song in a, in a slightly different key. So, I have so many questions, really, but I, I'm I'll stay focused on kind of the the micro and the immediate right now, which is to say. So you think this was somewhat tactical on Bannon's part to like he believes that this presidency will fail. Otherwise, he wouldn't have told Wolf all this stuff. Right. 
I think Bannon actually, I'm not sure it was strategic when he gave Wolf the interviews. Okay. Uh, Because is anyone that dumb? Because actually, all right, so I I have to pause and say, so as a reporter, I will say that something that often people don't realize, and and you as someone who talks to reporters realizes this, that people will say amazing shit to reporters. Yeah. And the the difference in most of us is I'll say amazing shit on purpose. (laughs) But even you, like, I mean, the thing is, like, there's, you know, like Janet Malcolm wrote the, um, you know, amazing book, The Journalist and the Murderer, which is Mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. literally someone self-incriminating themselves to a Mm -hmm. a journalist. And there's this there's a nugget of, of real wisdom in that book, which I've seen proven over and over again, which is that people will say amazing truths to someone who is paying attention to them. They yes. will reveal deep, dark secrets. So people who are saying that Bannon wouldn't have done this on purpose or that Bannon must be doing this on purpose. Look, uh, they're, they're are missing that part of this, which yeah. is that if you are if you are a rapt audience, people say incredible things that they don't they don't otherwise mean to say. Absolutely. And and the fact that that this White House allowed Wolf to basically work in the White House for almost a year. Mm-hmm. On this, it tells you a lot. He'd sort of disappeared into the into the the, the static uh, of all these competing and warring factions inside the Trump White House, and kept his ears open and kept talking to people. And the fact that the fact that he recorded a lot of these interviews is even more magnificent. And you know, and and, and frankly, and a part of this also, um, good White Houses leak on purpose. Mm. Happy White Houses leak on purpose with a strategy with deliberate, you know, uh, objectives. Bad White Houses and poor White Houses and White Houses in, in crisis leak like this White House. And so you have all these different factions talking all the time. And, and you've got a guy with, a, with a, 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 an ear for the color of it. And you've got a guy with a recorder running. And the real big important thing here is you can see where the turn is going with a lot of the folks from the White House. Said, oh, this is one book. He made it up. It's all BS. No one said this. It's a lie. We all love the great leader. A lot of other reporters that you know and that I know are talking to Bannon and talking to people in the White House, and they're telling them the same exact thing. This is not a, a you know a, a, a solo effort on Wolf's part where no one else has ever heard of anything going on in in this White House that could even you know be remotely like this book. They hear they hear it every day. They see it every day. They see the evidence of it every single day. You know that that theory of A's hire A's and B's hire C's. Well, you know A's hire A's and B's hire C's, and Trump hires Scaramucci and Amorosa and and Bannon. And so you you get this quality of 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 staffer in the White House right now that is you know I, I wouldn't put these people in charge of a waffle house much less the white house oh the waffle and, house i i mean how dare you even imply that the waffle house could be run by anyone but by the most uh, efficient and you know militaristic kinds of minds like they open in snowstorms like oh, waffle you, don't, houses don't mis- don't mistake me i said i wouldn't put them in charge of a waffle okay, house okay, well, but it's a that, smaller effort than, so the, than the leader of the free world so far above their pay grade or above their <laughs> mental grade i should say um but i wanted to say say something about the the truthiness of this book which is that a, a lot of people have been talking about whether or not wolf wolf's quotes can be believed whether or not his stories can be believed this the thing is though, as you said, this White House has done this to themselves, made truthiness over truth a part of our currency. Like because there's all these other stories that are similar to this one that are true, that people mm-hmm. have gotten sourcing for, this one just it doesn't go too far go far enough off of the known, you know, known things to, for people to say, oh, that doesn't sound right. Like even the Boehner story, like of him asking who's Boehner. Number one, I do believe he might have dementia and therefore might have asked who Boehner is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> number two, I can totally see as a reporter myself, and I've been tempted to do this. If something happens in front of you and you know that it's a good scene, even if it's not the way you portray it, it's going to be kind of not true. Like, let's say like Trump didn't hear the name right or he, the mispronunciation or something. Like you'd still put that in your book. Like it still happened, you know. Right. So I mean, there's the like color, a, the the colors there. The color is there. So, but I mean, that's a, just a particular nitpicky detail. But this White House has turned us into consumers of 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 truthiness over truth in a way that the president talks. So like I can't. They can't fight this. You know. They can't say it's not true because we've they've disregarded. You know. They've redefined true. 
Well, look, the, the, the contempt for objective truth started during the campaign, but yeah. I mean, Kellyanne won the award when yeah. she came out and said the alternative oh, facts and whatnot. And, and, <laughs> and, and the fact of the matter is, obviously, that's sort of tautological here, but sorry, um, the core of this whole thing is there are objective, true, and false statements in the world. There are things that are or are not happening. Yeah. And just screaming, it's lame, mainstream, lamestream media, you know, fake news. You know, it works, but with an increasingly narrow circle of dumbasses. Yeah. And, and you know, at the, at the end of the day, um, the frustration rising inside of, of, of the minds of a lot of Americans comes from this Trumpian war on truth and war on the press and war on, on anything that's not on message for Donald Trump. People are sensing it and they're not happy about it. And even, you know, we, we, I just read a or just watched a video of a focus group uh, from a couple of weeks ago. And these folks were in the room, and they were Trump supporters. And you know, you, you saw it like over and over again. I wish he would stop tweeting. Mm. I wish he would stop tweeting. Why does he have to be in fights every day? Why does he always want to fight with everybody? I thought we were going to get you know our steel mill reopened. I thought we were going to get you know uh, uh, the auto plant to start up again. But why is he fighting with CNN every day? And and you know, there's a narrow there's a narrow band of what I call the click conservatives. Uh, you know, conservative writers and thinkers who used to really care about, you know, big issues who now literally only say, well, I can handle Trump as long as he keeps giving me uh, the occasional tax cut and he goes to war every day with Jake Tapper hmm. uh, or CNN or whatever. I mean, it's just it, – it, it's a fascinating sort of uh, uh, decline of, uh, on the conservative uh, intellectual space. Now, I agree. I think that uh, most Americans – Maybe don't even care about the Wolf Book, right? I mean, they do care more about their health care and the steel mill and um, CHIP, you know, getting funded. So when you put your sort of strategist hat on mm -hmm. and look at the situation, what is this? What is it that we should be paying attention to in all this? Well, what we should be paying attention to is how did Steve Bannon's role, and particularly in this crisis, Steve Bannon says he figured this out, you know, when he found out about this meeting, found out about these three guys, and then he was in charge or in 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 a meaningful way uh, in the White House of pushing back on the Russia investigation. The, again, this all comes down to a culture in the White House that's protecting Trump from himself, and and the biggest thing where he's where he's harming himself is the Russia investigation and the and the and the the. the obstruction of justice that he's clearly <laughs> engaging in damn near every day and how and how he's already you know sort of blown up the agenda but look because Trump doesn't have because Trump doesn't have an actual ideological agenda of his own um, he is an opportunist at best in those things and and the, even the things people attribute to him, like, oh, the tax bill is a big win for Trump. It's a big win for Mitch McConnell and mm -hmm. for an army of extremely well-paid lobbyists on K Street. Mm -hmm. And Donald Trump had nothing to do with that fight uh, except signing it and taking credit for They kept for him it. out of it. And as yeah, of course. Yeah. We could, look, they realize it with, with the failure of Trump Care 1, 2, and 3 – um, every time Donald Trump, you know, gets involved in these things, they go they go belly up. Yeah. So, like I said, and to loop back in the top here, uh, I really think that what we should be watching is how the self destructiveness of Trump's own behavior, uh, you know, continues to put him in political and legal jeopardy in the coming weeks because there aren't a lot of people left uh, in the White House who who uh, you know have a clear sense of even desiring to control his behavior. It's pretty obvious that John Kelly just sort of shrugged his shoulders and said, ah, screw it. I'm here for the ride. Or um, said, I'm here to like throw myself in front of, you know, the nuclear football if the time comes, which is the other thing I, I wanted to ask you about, because I know you have a lot of context in the national security and foreign policy world. I do. <laughs> and we all got so excited. We all meaning I'll say it, you know, like uh, political Twitter um, about the Wolf book, the whole nuclear button <laughs> episode that aired just the other day, mm -hmm. um, which we thought was going to be the season cliffhanger, um, seems to be forgotten. But yeah, so here's a here's a chipper thought for you, Anna. Mm. Uh, so our nuclear command and control system 
and I'm a little rusty on this. You know, it's 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 been a few years, but I, I went to enough school to learn about this a bit. Our nuclear command and control system is designed to be very secure and to be um, very clear cut on lines of authority and who can release nuclear weapons. It is also because it was built to be able to respond to an incoming overwhelming uh, attack from from uh, other nuclear powers meant to to exist without a whole lot of friction in the system. Mm. So when the president reaches into the football, breaks out the biscuit, reads the code, and they, they pass that code up to NORAD and off it goes, it's not meant to have a lot of guys going, wait a minute. Are we sure the, the, the are we sure the president is is sane? Are we are we sure he's got his mental faculties all in in in, in order? Well, it, you know, there's still no friction in this system because you know d- uh, Jim Mattis doesn't get a phone call when Donald Trump decides to get a wild hair up his ass and turn North Korea into a shimmering plane of radioactive glass. Mm. He doesn't get a phone call saying, "Hey, by the way, do you think this is a good idea, Jim?" If the president wants to, he can. That's it's it's one of the awesome powers of the presidency that should both inspire awe and fear in in both allies and adversaries. This president, you know, I, I hope there will be I hope there will be people who recognize illegal orders when they see them, which is an effect uh, or which is a requirement. You know, not only are you are, are you required to obey legal orders, you're required to object to illegal orders. You know, and if he just does this out of uh, without a, a a strategic framework around it, I hope somebody in the national security apparatus says, "Whoa, Nelly, let's 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 uh, put on the brakes here a little bit." But the the system is not built to have a lot of checks and balances. Um, beyond the executive, nobody else is getting phone calls except you know the commander at NORAD who is told. Execute this particular package of options, boom, boom, boom. And most of those kids in the silos aren't going to, you know, they're, they're trained and they're selected. They're going to follow follow the order. And and God forbid we ever get to that point. Um, and, and God forbid Trump ever – and he's said a few things over the years that have troubled me and other folks who have studied the employment – uh, of, of nuclear weapons and the, and the importance of deterrence and the importance of, you know, having these magnificently powerful and horrible machines that we never use because it, it's it, the ritualistic mantra of the nuclear world is you know, the purpose of nuclear weapons is to never you never use nuclear weapons. The purpose of having nuclear weapons is to never, ever, ever use them. And Trump is kind of a juvenile and he's he's, he's a man with limited mental faculty. So he doesn't understand, you know, it won't just make a big pretty boom and a bright light. It's going to destroy the world economy and lead to a massively unstable set of geopolitical outcomes that are almost literally unimaginable. Yes, on that cheery note, I guess <laughs> I actually am working on a piece for my sci-fi column that revisits some of the um, 70s and 80s like nuke porn sci-fi. So oh, yeah. it may be kind of literally unimaginable for the millennials out there. But um, there once was a time when people spent a lot of time imagining what nuclear war was going to be like. And so forthcoming column for you right there. But I'm also curious, so the people you talk to in national security circles, like what are they are they thinking what you just told me? Are they are they thinking about just oh shit? Like there's no friction in the nuclear you know deployment system, or are they? There are legitimate. There are legitimate concerns. I, I spoke to somebody who was in in the the nuclear strategic section uh, of this. Uh, I don't want to bust him out too much, but a, a person who had at one point in his career had launch authority, mm-hmm. okay, and and was able would would have been able in that situation to command you know young men to turn those keys. And he's you know well well retired now, but he, he, we struck up a conversation recently, and it basically came down to, uh, you know, if I was standing there and picked up the phone, and and it, uh, the context of it would it would be important to me now. He goes, but at the time, as a serving officer, you know, it, it, I came up in the Cold War. You know, there wasn't this wasn't going to be us preemptively launching against the Russians. That wasn't really ever in our game plan. You know, we had plans in the book to do it, but we never trained for it or we never prepared for it. I mean, Trump is is seemingly talking about preemptively using nuclear weapons against the North Korean nuclear complex. And 
you know, that's why we're in a very, very risky phase of our national life here, because, you know, we're the only country that's ever used nuclear weapons in war. And when we did it, it was in a vastly different context. And we can litigate Japan surrendering or not all day long. But we didn't live then in a world that was so intensely globally interconnected. We were the sole nuclear power in the world at that time. Um, oh, and there was so much debate about whether or not we were going to do it. I mean, well, within, I mean, it, I, again, we can again litigate whether or not it was the right decision, but like mm-hmm. people put a lot of thought into it, you know? It was not lightly taken. Yeah. It was uh, not trivially undertaken. It was not taken because, you know, uh, Truman woke up one morning with a hard on and said, oh, I'm going to go get those bastards. Or more to the point, woke up without a hard on, which I think is maybe the real problem here, but it, it, you know, <laughs> as my friend Sarah Rump said the other day, she goes, and she wrote a column about this. She goes, sometimes they want to take a serious look at the crisis in the White House, and other times they just want to fill up a column with dick jokes. And, you know, this this was the day Donald Trump made it easy. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it, 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 there's definitely a, uh, there's definitely a, uh, an infantile nature to Trump's back and forth. And look, part of that comes from he came out of this like page six yeah. culture in New York City, New York Post, you know, gossip column, you know, spritzing with people and scrapping back and forth. You know, it, and he treats, unfortunately, the potential use of nuclear weapons and nuclear war with the same seriousness that he treated, you know, whether or not Marla Maples, you know, had had. I don't know. I cheated on it. Whatever. I, I, so all these things, all these things that that ought to be taken very, very seriously, and that have traditionally, by presidents of both parties, there has never been an American president in in the nuclear era who treated nuclear weapons this lightly and this and this trivially, and. And there's never been an American president who who has failed to basically uh, even begin to understand what the impacts of using nuclear weapons might be. And and if you if you even know a little bit, no matter how much of a uh, no matter how much of a of a a hawk you might think uh, a guy like Dick Cheney was, former boss, full disclosure, um, Dick Cheney didn't wake up in the morning thinking, wow, I can't. I can't wait to make light, lighthearted jokes about using nukes on our on our, on our on, on our enemies. You know, no no one. Ronald Reagan joked one time, "We began bombing Russia in five minutes," but never in the course of his administration did he treat it. You know, in the big picture, like this was something hilarious. He was terrified of. Well, he also wasn't uh, talking the to the Russians with that. That's the other right. Like, <laughs> I mean, I don't. I can't believe I'm defending Ronald Reagan. Oh my god. <laughs> Oh, Rick, we are truly through the looking glass. When it comes to bra shopping, it is all about finding the right fit for you. And there's only one lingerie brand that offers bras in sizes double A through G, as well as half cup sizes. Third Love. Third Love uses thousands of real women's measurements and super smoothing memory foam to create bras that fit better and feel great. I have several pairs. They're super comfy. They also are super comfy without you having to leave the comfort of your home, which um, at least this week is really unpleasant for a lot of us. You can stay nice and warm and safe with your ladies and still get fitted for a bra. The thing about most old school bra brands is that they only carry 15 sizes. Third Love has over 60 sizes, including half cups. Have you never heard of half cups? That's because they did not exist until Third Love started doing it. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering my listeners 15% off your first order. You can find the bra you've been waiting for all your life. And all you have to do is answer a few simple questions from Third Love's Fit Finder quiz. Again, safety and warmth of your own home. It takes just 60 seconds. So you'll never have to have that awkward fitting room experience again, which would involve A, leaving your home, B, taking your clothes off in front of another person um, and not being able to control the temperature at that place. Try Third Love Bra. It's so comfortable you might forget you're wearing it. And if you don't agree, returns and exchanges are always easy and free. This year, make the change that will change the way you think about bras. Go to thirdlove.com slash friends right now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash friends. 
15% off thirdlove.com slash friends. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut. I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, it's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiance of Stefan Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. I want to ask a clarifying question about your friend who once was part of the nuclear mm -hmm. launch uh, or chain of command. Is he saying when he talks about in his era, it was in the context of the Cold War and there was never any plans for a preemptive nuclear strike. Is he saying that for him, he would have would have had a lot of hesitation to turn the key? Well, what he was saying, what he was saying was he, the well, what he had said was the anticipated scenario for them was always was always response. Oh right? shit! There's there's a thousand Russian missiles right. coming up over the pole. Right. Uh, time to go to war, and would have done it without a blink. Okay. Um, you know, because that was that, you know that thousand nuclear missiles was probably going to be a hundred million American deaths. Right. And right. at that point, it's a war. He said he didn't really think a lot about you know a preemptive nuclear strike by the U.S. Um, particularly, you know, there's a certain degree of proportionality right. um, in these <laughs> questions. And, you know, so North Korea has tested nuclear weapons. And you can blame any administration you want. And frankly, I could put blame on both the Bush administration, the, the prior, and the Obama administration for not taking the North Korean question seriously enough and not engaging it seriously enough. The answer, though, is not now let's nuke North Korea because they've you know, built the bombs we let them build. Um, the, the answer is still to try to work um, in ways that, uh, that 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 get this problem under control sooner than later. And was he trying to project into like what they're thinking, like what the thinking of the people in the chain of command now might? I, you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't characterize it that far. And like he said to me, he goes, look, I've been retired now for right. 16, 17 years. And so it's not, he's not, this isn't a guy who who's been thinking about, you know, the day-to-day, -day, he's not looking at the book day-to-day -day thinking, here are the portfolio of exciting right. nuclear options, Mr. President. Right. I guess I'm just curious, like, I, yeah, I mean, I guess we're all curious about what the mentality of the people who are in that chain of command is. Um, before I let you go, one more question, which is, um, so how is the Never Trump movement doing these days? Um, are your ranks growing? Steve Bannon just joined, so I mean, <laughs> hell. <laughs> yes, we're going to give him a, a pink pussy hat. Like, I think that's yeah. the, the plan. He'll look great in it. The ranks of Never Trump, I think, are about where they were um, six months ago. Um, a, lot of the, a lot of the internal pressure inside the party to get this tax cut passed, and I've said this on a million Periscope uh, things and, and tweets— the pressure of passing the tax cut was so overarching and so overwhelming that people were willing to make a lot of compromises. And I think that a lot of folks who are starting to now say, what's the next big hill to climb? Oh, it's the 2018 election, are starting to recognize that the landscape is looking pretty ugly um, in a lot of places. 
and running in this in the in the 2018 cycle as a conventional Republican or as a Trump Republican is going to be a high hill to climb. And so I think you're going to have to see a lot of them in districts that aren't, you know, rock solid, deep red, um, deep south or, or, or deep rural districts. They're going to have to make a distinction because right now the energy is on the Democratic side where people will crawl over broken glass to vote against Donald Trump or his or his or his people. Mm-hmm. Um, and and on the Republican side. You know, the 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 election for Republicans hasn't become nationalized yet. It's already nationalized for the Democrats, um, and and for the Republicans, it's not quite in that in that frame yet. So they're going to have to do a lot of work. And if you're going to run in a in a red district, you know, you've got one set of of agendas. If you're going to run in a more purple district, or God forbid, a blue seat, um, which you know basically comprises about forty to forty five Republican seats right now. Um, you better not run as a conventional GOP down the line Trumper. Um, he's just not popular with with the people that you're going to have to come out and ask you to vote for you. And that is a lesson that Ed Gillespie learned in Virginia very clearly, mm-hmm. where a lot of pe- folks who are, you know, basically behavioral centrist conservatives came out and said, eh, not so much. So we're going to see some interesting, like people are going to have to decide pretty pretty quick here, what kind of Republicans they're going to be as they run. Well, yeah, I think that's true. And I think, I think one thing that, that the never Trump movement got a, got a little bit of a win on in the last couple of, of hours mm. um, is that the Mercers have basically told people now, and I, the, so the piece in the Hill is, is one area of it. And I've, I've had it confirmed from another source now that there's a, a, a rift there um, that they're not going to be funding Steve Bannon's efforts to go out and um, and primary Republican uh, incumbents across the country. So, you know, a lot of those guys who are not hardcore Trump folks, a lot of those guys who are not hardcore, um, who are who are not hardcore, you know, red hat wearing guys, they're going to have a little bit of breathing space uh, in the in the primary situation. And therefore, they can express themselves a little more clearly um, and a little more um and a little more openly about their objections to some of the things this president uh, says and does. But does that mean we'll have some kind of control on him in Congress from these people? Or that what they're going to have to be promising? Well, in Congress, you're going to see the, the the rift between the Freedom Caucus and everybody else. Right. I mean, the 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 axis of assholes right now um, that are screaming for Sessions to resign and for you know uranium one to be investigated yeah. and you know all that other claptrap. Um, those guys do not care if they lose the majority. That's the irony. Th- those guys actually don't care if they lose oh, the majority. Oh, they have more fun if they're in the minority anyway. Right. They'd rather be throwing bombs and screaming about Nancy Pelosi and 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 losing their minds every day than they would to do like the the cat herding hard work of getting votes and building coalitions and and ensuring, you know, that they have a stable majority over time, et cetera, et cetera. So I mean we're 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 in a uh we're in a world where that where that Freedom Caucus group that are that are the actual Trumpers in the House, they don't care about their 40, 45 uh, colleagues who are in districts that are not, you know, similar to the deepest parts of Red Alabama. They they don't care about those people. They're willing to see them. And I I, I heard a conversation uh, that was relayed to me by a by a seeing member. The conversation was related to me with a current member of Congress who basically shrugged and said, oh, well, you know, if, if, if the majority is smaller or if we lose it, you know, then at least we're rid of Paul Ryan. Oh. <laughs> oh. Uh, oh, okay. So, you know, I, I may be, a, uh, I may be an, uh, an apostate and a heretic and all this on the Republican side, but um, call me crazy as a Republican. I happen to think that Paul Ryan's probably a better speaker for you if you want to pass conservative things than Nancy Pelosi might be. Mm. Uh, and that's, a, that's an edgy statement. But, you know, these guys, these guys really believe that uh, that smaller, pure, a smaller and more pure uh, caucus is uh, going to be more fun and better and uh, and get and get them closer to the goal of whatever the hell they're trying to accomplish uh, than than a majority. It, it is. It is astounding. And is that good news for people who want to impeach Trump? That's what I'm trying to get to a bottom line here. 
before we go? Well, see, if I was the Democrats, and, I, and I've cautioned people all along, even if you find Trump is has convicted in, or, or, or has conducted himself in a way that, that where impeachable offenses have been have been undertaken, making impeachment the center of the politics of the next year, the Democrats are already motivated. Republicans are not. If you give them, mm-hmm. if you nationalize the election by making it about a, a, a national referendum on impeachment, I think that's the one thing where Trump could be saved by the Democrats. Oh. Interesting. Um, like I said. Uh, but what about, I mean, but we do need some kind of restraining influence on him. Is that the, is oh, we, that, we do. And what about we impeachment do, I, if impeachment is warranted? Do you, do you like, you, you don't make it about impeachment on the top line. You say we need some kind of, you know, he needs to be checked. Yes. And I think that that and is, there's also a great if he's tradition shown, in American, For instance, yeah. to have com- committed, you know, crimes, let's well, say, listen, just I mean, for example. Yeah, there's a, there's a great <laughs> tradition uh, and if you look at 1994, Republicans won uh, in the House, you know, picked up an enormous number of seats in the House because their message was uh, Jim Wright and the Democratic caucus, you know, the House bank scandal and the Page scandal, these guys are corrupt and we need a check on them. And Bill Clinton is a is a loose cannon tax raising liberal and we need a check. Well, and then the clock rolled around to 2006, where the Democrats said the Republicans are a warmongering, uh, fiscally irresponsible, corrupt party with their own set of you know uh, sex scandals and Mark Foley and you know, and corruption like Abramoff, and we need a check. Well, and in 2010, right, the Democrats right, right, right. we yes, were Americans like Americans love this love love a split government basically. Right. You don't have to te- you don't have to you say what the exact outcome is going to be. You just have to let them know you can do it. Right. So one, I guess I I have to move on. But the last question is, I guess Sarah Huckabee Sanders was just asked if Breitbart should fire Bannon. Um, And she said that I think that's something that should be looked into. Again, we have the White House functioning as the world's most powerful HR department. Um, Again, uh, that's what they apparently do with their free time. Um, What do you think about Bannon on the loose? Can you imagine if for one second Josh Holmes or anybody else in the Obama White House had come out yeah, and said, I know, I know, fuck, I know. should fire Roger Ailes. We should look into that. The <laughs> shitstorm on the right would be so apocalyptic it would leave a glowing hole. It would be something that it, it would be it would be worse than Donald Trump's worst nuclear fantasies in North Korea. Yeah. It would be literally I mean, these people would be having an apoplectic fit. There would be acres of ink spilled on 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 yeah. think pieces about why Obama's White House is out of control and authoritarian. He mildly criticized a, a, a Fox journalist, I think, at one point, and they went yes. apeshit. Yeah. Um, and when I say they're the world's most powerful HR department, I just mean by that they have nukes. They don't actually are able to fire people. Um, yeah, you know, they just, exactly. It's like, like we can counsel you or we can nuke you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, but do you think Bannon, just Bannon disappear from the national stage if he's cut loose? What is what is the future for Bannon? No, and look, I, I think Bannon is like less. sort of, it's like drug resistant syphilis. He's going to keep <laughs> popping back up um, and trying to infect the world he with his- He is drug resistant with, syphilis. <laughs> 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 Jesus. <laughs> he's going to keep trying to infect the world with his nationalist populism, and uh, and he's going to keep he's going to keep trying to, to to press back into this. But listen, without the if if the Mercers have cut him off as as it seems likely that they have, you know, it's easy to be an arsonist when a billionaire is writing the checks. Yeah, it's a lot more difficult when you're responsible for 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 buying for doing your own it matches. On your own if we're going to, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I, as usual, it has been a delight to talk to you. We will check in again Likewise. with you next right. month if we're all still here. Let's um, hope so. I salute you. If not, in the meantime, by SPF 2 million. <laughs> here is a New Year's resolution you can keep. Add stamps.com to your business and save a ton of time and money this year. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. I don't know about you guys, but I became an LLC this year. I became a pass-through corporation because that's apparently how you have lower taxes in this world and corporations are people too. Uh, so that means that I can write off a lot of stuff uh, if I do it for my business. And so I am a business and I use stamps.com and it is so great to be able to do it from home and to be able to 
have every single thing that you might go to the post office for available right there at my desktop. I can print official U.S. postage for any letter or package and any class of mail, and the mailman will pick it up. There's no arranging someone to come by like there is with other services. No leaving the office, no lugging mail to the post office, and no more hassle. Saves you time and money. And they make it easy. They will send you a digital scale that automatically calculates the postage, and you never have to overpay or underpay or guess about postage again. You can create your Stamps.com account in minutes with no equipment to lease and no long-term commitment. Like I said, I use Stamps.com because I am officially a corporation. Uh, I encourage everyone who has that capacity uh, to become one as well. Apparently, that's the only way you survive in the new Thunderdome world. And use Stamps.com. And right now, you can enjoy Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and that digital scale. Are you ready for a happier new year? Go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page and type in friends. That's stamps.com and use the offer code friends on that little microphone at the top. Now a conversation with Sachi Cole. She is a culture writer at BuzzFeed and the author of the essay collection, One Day We'll All Be Dead and None of This Will Matter. An unfortunately apropos title for this uh, podcast theme this week. Sachi Cole. The kids and teenagers who make up Paul's core audience are enraptured by his easy charm, his good looks, how being a fan feels like being on a winning team. It feels like a popular senior letting you follow him on his private Instagram. It feels like being invited to a great party thrown by a cool person who is definitely not a virgin. In essence, thinking about Paul forces you to pick a side. Do you want to hitch your wagon to the low gang and hope that you get pulled along? Or do you want to eat lunch with your teacher, you narc? Without really trying, YouTube has become its own kind of high school community, where being popular is the priority at any cost. This tone is represented in every corner of the platform, from the mean girls of makeup artist YouTube, the assholes of gamer YouTube, the aggressively unfunny comedian YouTube, thoughtless cruelty, needless cattiness, and of course, vile racism and sexism are often rewarded with more attention The voices that dominate on YouTube remind us that we're compelled by the unsettling and by the ugly. It's becoming increasingly obvious and disappointing who will win the popularity contest in the end. Rich, white, hot, vapid. We have a real uplifting program today. Uh, (laughs) This fits in with that. Uh, We talked about nuclear war in the previous uh, segment. Uh, which I guess is itself a kind of rich, white, hot, and vapid thing. Um, And people might be wondering why I wanted to talk about Logan Paul on a political podcast, but I would hope that attentive listeners would hear in the segment you just read, and especially if they take the time to read your whole piece, which I very, very much um, recommend that they do. It's one of the many great pieces um, about Logan Paul that came out this week. Uh, they will see in it, um, you know, strands of narrative that we've been talking about on this show for a while, um, which is to say I see kind of like Trumpism uh, writ small, maybe, maybe larger than Trumpism. But um, it's, a, it's a kind of Trumpism um, on a, in a different venue uh, with different actors. Uh, Logan Paul definitely reminds me himself of, of Trump. Um, He's very popular. <laughs> <laughs> he's very popular. He has weird hair. Yeah, he's got weird hair. He's really white. Um, and I want to punch him in the face. Yeah, those things they have in common. Yeah. We should catch people up on why it is everyone is writing about him these days, besides the fact that he is the cool kid on YouTube. Yeah. Um, so Logan is a really popular YouTuber. He has, uh, at last I checked, around 15 million subscribers on YouTube. He's one of their um highest subscribed channels, one of their uh, quickest to that number that they've ever had. And he does these uh, vlogs and like daily vlogging challenges and prank videos uh, and a lot of rapping and music (laughs) videos for some reason. He's really popular amongst teenagers. A lot of teenage girls are really into him. And he He shut down New York, basically. right? Yeah, he shut down New York because he was doing like a pop up store. He almost got kicked off of a a first class flight because he basically set up like a clothing production line in their first like in the cabin. Um, He almost shut down a mall, the the Dubai mall, 
um, because they had an 11,000 person meet and greet. Like he's he's a crazy popular, really arrogant ding dong. Um, but people really like him. And then on the weekend, he got in trouble because he went to Japan and he went to uh, this forest that they call the suicide forest. And he was recording a video there where he found a dead body. And then he he put that footage in the video. Uh, and obviously people thought that was in poor taste as it was. And so now he's sort of trying to extricate himself from this thing that he did and he's apologizing and he's getting in a lot of trouble. I just got an email that the clothing brand that he always talks about, Maverick, is is trying to drop him. So oh, wow. he's Consequences. in a lot of trouble. That's, that's new. Yeah. Um, it, it's more than he just, I, I want to dig in a little bit on the, it's more that he just showed a body. That'd be one thing, right? Like yeah. if you were well, just like, laughing. oh, wow, yeah, look, he was there's a body. Up at it. And that's his tone is it is sort of like he thinks he's trying to get into this edgier space because he came from Vine. And when he was doing Vines, he was in high school. He's about 22 now, but he was doing, you know, these sort of cutesy, a lot of physical comedy. It was stuff you could have shown anybody and it would have been fine. And he did sort of make this concerted shift as he moved into YouTube and he started to get money and he started to have investors. And as he wanted to sort of launch his own acting career, he's starring in a movie, I think that's coming out later this year. Um, he wanted to be edgier and he wanted to be funny and glib and interesting. And so in that turn, when they when they were in the forest, he's cracking jokes and he's laughing and and I mean, it, it, it was just utter stupidity. And it wasn't live either, which I think is an important element. He edited the video and made a point to have that be in there. Yeah. And I think one of the things that, that you talk about is that the scolding that's happening is like basically the olds. Yeah. <laughs> the olds scold. And yeah. The, and old here means like 24. <laughs> I think even I think my I think the audience I think of my audience as being slightly younger than I am. I'm 45. Yeah. Um, but this is even this is Young's. This yeah. is like... <laughs> oh, well, I'm 26 and I feel like his mother. <laughs> like, I feel like I want to chastise him and sit him down and be like, this is why I wanted you to go to college. Like, yeah. I feel so... I, I really just want to, like, <laughs> talk him down for something right. dumb he well, did. It's, it's, so these are really young people and it... And it ever, I, I will be... I confess, like, I'm so out of touch. I'm so old. Like, I haven't read what the Young's are really saying about this, but the sense I get from people who I... I trust to report on this is that the bifurcation of responses is real, that there's this response by the establishment that's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. You know, why did you do that? And then there's this like mass of like rabid fans who love him even more. And does that remind you of anything? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's funny because when people talk about like the rabid affection for Trump and how, you know, people are so blindly faithful to him, it's like, has anybody met a teenage girl? Like, of course, like, of Trump course that's has. how people act. Like, it's, it is very much in human nature. And so when you look at these teenagers and how they're talking about Logan, it is really creepy and mm-hmm. it's weird. And it's, of course, it's upsetting, but it's not rare. Right. And we were sort of talking about this even when we were trying to figure out what this piece would be at, at, at with my editors. And they were like, I wonder why. Like, why is he so popular? And it's like, he's a rich, white, attractive, tall I don't blog. think he's attractive. Just on the record, I think yeah, he looks like people, I, think I got he looks lots like of a, emails about that where people were like, "I don't find him attractive." Fair he looks enough. like an eraser with a face, <laughs> but he is sort of like bland one hundred and one. So you can kind of put on him whatever you want. Yeah, eraser doesn't really with a look face. like anything. Yep. Um, so, but the, it, and other people have also drawn attention to the fact, like, yes, well, his, his look, if we want to make this analogy between uh, 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 the establishment tut-tutting and a mm-hmm. rabid fan base who then grabs onto their uh, uncouth edgy you know idol even more yeah other people have also pointed out well that they're teenagers they're going to grow out of this but i worry that's not the case <laughs> i worry i mean teenagers do grow out of stuff but what yeah. they grow out of are particular idols they don't grow out necessarily of like certain kinds of normalized behaviors I mean, I think if you look at sort of other older celebrities and the people who defend them when they do things that are not defensible, it's clear that it just sort of gets transferred over. Mm -hmm. Like when you think about how people were talking about Johnny Depp when he was being accused of domestic abuse, it's the same thing. Like it's just a different celebrity and he's 50. People are really (laughs) defensive about whoever they think is theirs. There's an ownership in there. There's a kind of, you align your identity to it. And then when anybody sort of comes for it, you can't see beyond. I mean, we, we've been seeing it a lot, especially in the last few 
months. We were seeing it with Louis C.K. We'll see it with more. Like it, it's it's not gonna. It doesn't go away. You just sort of put it on somebody else. But I also think there's something about the YouTubiness of this. Yeah, um, I think people feel really involved with him because they kind of like raised him up. And like also, the, there's that the imaginative space of YouTube, which you know, since the beginning of media, there have been old saying, you've gone too far, right? (laughs) Like, there's always boundary pushing by the new generation and the new generation of media. Yeah. Um, But this next, you know, iteration of media, which is YouTube and social media, which I don't even think we have necessarily the language to even talk about what it is. Yeah. Has created a space of such boundary pushing like i'm also thinking about the um child exploitation videos that sure that buzzfeed covered which if people should read that story as well mm-hmm. it's um fascinating and intensely disturbing um uh piece uh, who wrote that piece for you guys i can't i char- possibly charlie i might be getting it wrong I okay think it was charlie well, we'll put a link. Uh, I, yeah, we'll, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. But it, it's about basically how YouTube, it's terrifying. YouTube, kind of let this yeah. corner of its uh, real estate populate with videos that were not marked as as being disturbing, but yeah. are basically child exploitation videos, and that were kind of generated by algorithms. It's hard to describe what ha- again. I don't think we even have the language of it. Yeah, it's it's such a tricky it's such a tricky case, and I mean. What's sort of happening now is YouTube has let these things happen for a really long time because their stance was we are neutral. Right. Which was also a stance. Right. And it was a stance we heard from another platform called Twitter, which also told us we're neutral. Well, you can't be neutral about things like neo-Nazism. You can't be neutral about abuse and you can't be neutral about vile content like that because then you're picking a side by letting it be there. Yeah. And so YouTube had a very similar stance where they, you know, didn't really do any intervention. And now they're they're They really have have to. People are starting to notice. I feel like YouTube's day is coming in the way that it kind of did for Twitter, where everyone looked around and was like, whoa, it sucks here. Hey, well, did it happen for Twitter? Because now we well, have in just... terms of how, at least that we were speaking about it. I don't mean in consequences, <laughs> certainly not in consequences. I don't feel like that's happened, but at least it's being discussed. Right. And YouTube I should point out really this, this that. is this, the, the YouTube, uh, we're just a platform happened with Logan Paul, too. They took a long time to respond yeah. to, to this. Um, and I guess what I'm talking about the YouTubiness of it and how this might be different than previous generations of scolding and boundary pushing is the way people think about the space that they inhabit. There's something about the um, uh, cycle of uh, daring and yeah. and uh, being repulsed but watching it over and over. Yeah. Kind of like there's a whole thing like even like, oh, God, like BuzzFeed does horror stories and stuff like there's something in this generation that maybe it's not maybe it's always been there. But like, I don't understand like zit popping. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't, don't understand. Know. I don't like, know if it's like this generation. I'm always hesitant to say yeah, things yeah, like yeah. that because I'm a millennial. So every so often someone blames me for the housing market. So yeah. I'm always really hesitant to say anything about it. But I mean, I think I think there probably is something about being desensitized eventually because yeah. and they are they have to because they they did the thing, whatever, you know, whatever prank or whatever joke or whatever stunt two months ago. Right. And that's another that's thing. Like, I, I'm, I'm sensitive to this generation talk, too, because I'm a Gen Xer and we got yeah. blamed for a lot of shit. Um, I heard. You <laughs> told us. Heard it. You heard it yeah. on your landline phone. Yeah, yeah. And, but it is, I think, that exactly that, that desensitizing that is also a loop that's within oneself. Like, you are doing the stuff. Like, you're not just watching it. Like, you're kind of quasi-participating in it. Yeah, there is something that that probably is true. Yeah. I mean, and and Logan's like a great example of someone who is repulsive. But, yeah, I can see why... Of one video has, you know, 200 million clicks on it. It is a bizarrely enthralling horror show. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you also sort of get pulled into it because you watch it and you're like, who else is watching this? Yeah. <laughs> and you're stuck. Yeah. I have never, like, I'm not, I'm personally, like, not someone that I've never really gotten YouTube. Like, my husband, who I talk about a lot, but he is five years younger than me, which is somehow puts him on the other side of the generational divide. Um, <laughs> he watches YouTube. <laughs> like, 
it's a thing. Like, I'm yeah. like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm watching YouTube videos. What? Yeah. Like, it, I mean, and when it started, it felt really innocent. Like, yeah. it was like girls doing makeup tutorials and like people talking about like what they bought that day and like showing you the stuff, like the clothes that they got. And then it, like something happened and everything got really dark. It did get but really I dark. I feel like it's like we're completing the cycle now because obviously anything that's on the Internet must be ruined within, you know, a couple of years. So and also anything on the Internet somehow, sometimes... Uh, like has a political expression. And that's something yeah. uh, Richard Lawson wrote another good piece uh, for Vanity Fair about Logan Paul. And he pointed out, and I think you, you pointed out as well, like Gamergate gave us the alt-right. Yeah. Is this going to give us a political expression or has it already? Is that, is it, is its political expression sitting in the, in the white house as well? I, I almost think that, that it, for this case, the political expression is sort of, is the nothing is sort of that thing of like, I get to not, it's, it's being passive. I get to not participate in this because it doesn't affect me negatively. That's how I think of it. It's like the Taylor Swift version of politics. I'm not, I'm not playing. That's oh. what it feels like to me. Because someone like Logan is never going to, he, he, he and types like him don't step foot in those things because they know that they shouldn't and they can't. Because they have nothing to say. <laughs> They're fine. <laughs> but well, you know. mean, oh, it's funny. Did you actually mean that as like the literal, like he himself is just not going to participate? Because I actually was thinking, I guess a little more metaphorically, the political expression is nothing. I was thinking like, oh, void. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a void. <laughs> I feel like the way you interpret that says more about you than it does about me. But possibly. I don't know. I mean, I think I think the other thing about things like this is they they're not thinking mm -hmm. like I don't I don't think Logan made a video and sat down and thought about the consequences and what he was doing I think he thought people will click on this because it's crazy yeah oh and I'm sure that's, you know I'm sure I'm sure I guess he was right I guess he did accomplish that but I don't think he thought about a larger mission or goal well I don't think the Gamergate people were thinking necessarily that broadly at the time either I mean I think there is going to be a political expression of this yeah. and it, it it is maybe actually in what I meant what I was thinking about nothing is nihilism. And I think we're already seeing that. I think yeah. the, 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 the next iteration of Trumpism is just pure nihilism. And what a fun way to end the week. I know. What a fun, sexy time we're having. <laughs> I will just remind people. Here's a, here's a funny thing I'm going to remind people of to, to help us okay. end on a lighter note, which is yeah. that I'm skipping uh, genres and topics. Wiley which is one of the things that came out in the Michael Wolff book uh, is that while Trump was supposedly dictating the first um, denial of Don Jr.'s meeting with the Russians, H.R. Mm -hmm. uh, McMaster, uh, Gary Cohn, and uh, a bunch of the other like grownups were apparently sitting in another compartment of Airport One watching the movie Fargo. <laughs> <laughs> when that book comes out, I'm taking a full week off. <laughs> I'm taking a week off. I'm going to sit in a bunker and enjoy it properly. <laughs> that, that in itself should not make anyone happy because that means like the, the self-proclaimed committee to save America was watching a movie about a bumbling idiot trying to cover <laughs> up a crime while a bumbling idiot was sitting in the next room uh, trying to cover up a crime. It's all too perfect. It's but, all too perfect. Yes, but in this particular metaphor, mm -hmm. Mueller is March. And Marge kind of wins out at the end, you know, like, yeah. so let's, there is a Marge in the world. Okay. And there are other Marges in the world and we must have faith in the Marges of the world. And, and that is what's going to get me through the next few days, at least. That's nice. Am I a Marge? I don't know. You can decide for yourself. Oh, I wanted you to just say yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Then That's yes. Okay. Yes, you are a Marge. That's I don't fine. know you that well. I know. I was just hoping you'd go for it. <laughs> we can, I can, you know what? T based on this conversation, yes. Thank you. Yes, you are a Marge. Thank you. <laughs> I am, I'm going to say, I can claim, I'm definitely a Marge. Oh, good. Um, and we're, you know, we're, we'll are we stay on top of these things. We won't hurl. Okay. Uh, I don't, don't know if I approve of your police work there, but <laughs> uh, Okay. <laughs> it's good the best Minnesota I could do thank you so bad. much for joining us thanks for having me well that's it for the show thank you for sticking around through what was admittedly kind of um, a dark episode I wanted to add even though my conversation with Sachi 
got fairly, uh, I'm not going to say lighthearted, but there was some dark humor to it. Um, I take uh, suicidal ideation and suicide intentions very seriously. You should too. If you are feeling in any way like that is a possibility for you, you should call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 800-273-8255. That's 800-273-8255. If you are just having some kind of emotional uh, or mental crisis, you can use the crisis text line. They are there for you before you were in crisis. That's one of the things I love about them. They will help you get resources before you feel like you're really desperate. And they are at 741-741. They're also on Twitter. Thank you for sticking around. Um, I would like to remind everyone that New Year's resolutions don't count, uh, that New Year's resolutions are hopeful, but not intended to beat yourself up with. One thing I'm reminded of every day as a sober person is that what matters isn't that I make a resolution to do something, it's that I recommit to it every day. It doesn't matter how many times I walk away, it matters how many times I come back. So whatever it is that you wanted to do with your life starting on January 1st, whether it was quit something that's bad for you or start something that's good for you, if you've already fallen away from it, just walk back. You always can. You always can begin again. It is never too late to start your day over again. And we'll see you next week. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com.